Hi, I'm Gar Sanders. I'm Jamie Wincup. I'm James Courtney. Tony Delberto. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. Hi, I'm Todd Kelly. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth. You're listening to V8 Insiders. It's your weekly dose of V8 news on the V8 Insiders. Now, here's your host, Craig Revell. The bang and crash of Phillip Island surprises the drivers. When I saw number one on the side of the road, I wasn't too upset, I can tell you that much. Quite a big impact. I'm lucky. It, it, you go, it goes either way. The steering wheel flicked a turn, like, within half a second. FBR continue to dominate. Really stoked with this one today. And Sydney Motorsport Park is launched. That's all coming up today as the red lights go out on another edition of the V8 Insiders. Take in the V8 to the races. You watch the action on TV. Now, read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing, V8 supercars. Showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers, V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 supercar coverage. Out now. This news update is brought to you by V8X Magazine. Log on to the official V8X Magazine Facebook page for your chance to win some great prizes. Phillip Island returned to a short race format on the weekend and it was like the series turned into Dodgem cars. Drivers could not believe the way Saturday's Race 10 concluded with Will Davison spearing across the track and colliding with Jamie Winkup. It was a pretty wild moment through one. I was arms and legs going everywhere. I don't blame Will at all. You know, he, he was a bit of a passenger in that, at that stage. And Even Craig Lowndes was into the bang and crash. I had my, my own drama with, uh, with Jason, which I feel for because, uh, you know, you never like uh, getting taken out of a race and it was my mistake. We talk more about the penalties of V8 supercars on this week's Controversy Corner with permanent V8 Chief Steward Stephen Chopping. But although Davo was out of the action on Saturday, Frosty was able to keep the Ford Performance racing success rolling when he cruised to victory. Yeah, awesome car, awesome job by the boys, another win, it's uh, yeah, awesome feeling. Shane Van Gisbergen took out a solid second place after starting back in 11. Push forward, we uh, stayed out a lot longer and came through. Man, that was probably one of the scariest moments I've ever had in racing when uh, Will came flying through there. And Stone Brothers Racing celebrated two cars on the podium with Tim Slade taking third. You know, it's great for Stone Brothers to have all the cars up there and uh, and Lucky 7 as well. So On Sunday, Davison managed to bounce back to take the victory and a 10-point lead in the championship when he managed to keep the tyres under him and hold off the hard-charging Craig Lowndes. Just an amazing day after yesterday. Um, I was down last night. <laughs> I didn't enjoy that day yesterday and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, <laughs> really stoked with this one today. Lounge finished up in second after qualifying in the pole. A catastrophic start for the Triple Eight driver being the huge setback that he could not bounce back from. Pole position, very bad start. To Working through the grid, then queuing. And then obviously having that closing stage with Will was sensational. It was, uh, you know, the car was looking after its tyres. We had good speed. I was trying my best to try and close that gap down. But, of course, you know, we ran out of laps. And, uh, but I'm really satisfied. It's one of those races where 
you don't, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, you're satisfied because you put 110% in. The guys did a fantastic job in Team Vodafone, and of course, um, you know, the result you'd like to change, but uh, you know, you come out of the car knowing you give it 110%. Jason Bright went with a one stop strategy and was able to hang on for third place. To, to hang, hang on to these guys, you know, have been the front runners all year. Um, you know, probably when we didn't have our best tyres, and, and when they stopped later, I'm you know, extremely happy. It shows, shows we're on a good thing at the moment. In other news now, this week, Sydney Motorsport Park was unveiled as the new name for the Eastern Creek Circuit, a $12 million redevelopment at the centrepiece of the change, with it now providing two separate facilities for Sydney motorsport enthusiasts. V8 supercars have yet to announce the format for their visit in August, but it is believed that it will be held over two days and possibly on the original Grand Prix circuit, not the now extended circuit. Christian Clean will be joining Russell Ingall and the super cheap Autos Holdens for the Enduros this year. The ex-Formula 1 driver signed to co-drive with Ingall. Obviously really exciting and looking forward to... uh... To, to the rest of the season and especially, you know, the two Endura races and, and the big race in Bathurst. Clean gave his thoughts on joining up with the champion. He did over 200 races, so I'm, I'm uh, you know, really looking forward to the race uh, with him. I'm sure he can teach me a lot of tricks how to be fast in these kind of cars. And, uh, you know, for, from my point of view, I just uh, try to be as fast as possible in his car to help him get some good results out of, uh, out of the Enduro races. Engel says that the decision to take on the Austrian ace was not made lightly. I've always been known to go a little bit left field, but uh, we've done a lot of homework on this between the team and myself, and uh, he has all the right credentials. Um, obviously reached the very pinnacle of motorsport with Formula One as well. Um, very professional driver. Um, has already driven the car and was very, very quick at Winton Test. Tim Blanchard and David Russell have been confirmed that they'll be joining Todd and Rick Kelly for the Enduros in the Jack Daniels Racing Commodores. They're both looking forward to the chance to drive in the biggest races of the year. Hopefully get some good results and look for me, more so just having some having some solid results. I think the guys at Kelly Racing know what makes me tick and, and um, obviously they've kept me around for this year for a reason. Want to move up to the main game? It's the whole reason we're here, so that's the ultimate goal for next year. Russell, who you heard first, will be driving with Rick, whilst Blanchard will drive with Todd. And finally, Team Vodafone fans are invited to meet Lowndes Wing Cup, Dunlop Series driver Scotty Pye and Enduro driver Warren Luff this Saturday at the Triple Eight Garage Sale. The championship team will have merchandise, memorabilia, spare parts, plus a barbecue and workshop tours from 9am to 12pm. The Triple Eight factory is at 40 Depot Street, Banyo in Queensland. And that's the news on the V8 Insiders. On the white flag lap, we start a two-part interview with Tony D'Alberto. But after the break, Tony Whitlock and Steve Chopping join me to look back at Phillip Island, the 300, and stewarding when we return. News on the V8 Insiders is brought to you by the official V8X Magazine Facebook page. Sign up and keep in touch with V8 Supercars. You've taken the V8 to the races. You watch the action on TV. Now read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing, V8 Supercars. 
showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers. V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 supercar coverage. Out now. The views expressed on V8 Insiders, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect those of the network, Thunder Media, sportradio.com.au or V8X Magazine. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth. You're listening to V8 Insiders. Welcome back to the V8 Insiders. Joining us this week is uh, from Race Facts, Tony Whitlock. Good evening, Tony. And joining us for the first time, a real break from tradition for us here on the V8 Insiders, but it's great to have Stephen Chopping, who is the permanent chief steward of V8 Supercars, and uh, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Craig, and good evening, Tony. And good evening to you, Steve. Well, Phillip Island, what a fascinating weekend it was, and, and for you, Stephen, particularly because, gee, those drivers and teams kept you busy all weekend. When Phillip Island was an endurance race, it was one of those uh, events which really wasn't um, terribly hard to uh, deal with because the drivers were concentrating on finishing, but uh, they certainly um, uh, behaved differently last weekend and we ended up with two very different but hugely exciting races. It was interesting, Tony. Just uh, It was almost like Perth all over again. Well, in fact, I think it was more than that. I, I, as, as Steve mentioned, it was uh, harder racing than we've seen at Phillip Island, but it was also harder racing than I think we've seen for some considerable time. It was almost harking back to the old 20-minute sprint races. And I reckon there's a whole bunch of reasons. One is there was no economy race going on. Um, and that having the hard tyre only meant the tyres were wearing out and that people were naturally just sliding back sideways sideways and not coming in getting a new set of soft tyres and something else. so it was far more willing racing and we've certainly seen for quite some time it's interesting because uh, russell ingle said to me before we went to the single race per day format that he he was adamant that this was a bad move for the sport the sprint races is what people wanted to see and with perth and then the shorter races at phillip island Stephen, that's very much the way that it's been producing the better racing. Uh, the um, racing seems to me to have improved when we went to single-day races when that artificial compulsory pit stop was taken away. And to, to a degree now, with some changeable weather conditions that we've had on a couple of, at a couple of tracks um, and the uh, ability to manage your economy and the soft tyres, tactics have come back into it. And whereas we saw team tactics being important in endurance racing, it also becomes important now in the sprint races. Uh, the endurance races are such that the, the strong cars that we have these days are able to sprint for the whole day. Um, the shorter races are good. The tactics are slightly different. But uh, as Tony said, here was, a ca- here was a case where we were able to have real racing without any artificial element introduced because of a mixture of tyres and uh, we didn't have the economy run that some races have developed into. Mm. It's interesting. Saturday's race, in fact, was the very first race um, in the last 12 races where somebody's won from pole position. And that was used to be, you know, going back a few years ago, or, you know, in 2008, damn near every race was won from pole. In other words, the fastest guy just printed but now we're not seeing that we're seeing where strategy and car speed in races is 
you know, determining who's going to win race. Mm. And I don't know if Stephen can answer this question, but certainly, Tony, we're seeing FPR not shooting itself in the footers regularly, and uh, that's going to be critical when we come to those endurance races later in the year. Yeah, look, yeah. that's the culmination also of, of um, some very experienced people there now. They've put together a lot of good people in the team. It was a team that in the past had... Um, uh, um, really good qualifying speed. It wasn't always translated into race speed um, or uh, at times whether they were team mistakes or whether it was just bad luck that fell that way. Um, things seemed to be very much um, against moves that FPR did but now we've got a team that not only has qualifying speed but also has race speed and um, is able to match it with any other team on tactics as well. Mm. It has been interesting, as you said, the uh, the way the drivers approached the race and they were so aggressive, Stephen, and uh, that aggression, of course, uh, translated in uh, a number of those drivers visiting you and, and the team in the stewards' room. What, uh, what do you do when a driver is presented to you for something that they're always going to claim was a, a racing incident and, and you have to sit there and evaluate what's going what has gone on with the two sides of the story which are normally diametrically opposed i i imagine all we can do is apply the policy and the standards that um apply through the championship we've got some very strict guidelines that uh, are of assistance in determining whether something is within or outside the rules. We have the advantage in that uh, Thomas Mazera, as the driving standards observer, really is the opinion of the stewards and um, the opinion that Thomas has as to whether something is of an appropriate standard or below the required standard is uh, pretty much the, um, the way that we go. So Thomas sets the standard we then determine the uh, extent by which those standards have been breached and what an appropriate penalty is for, for the breach. Mm. Tony? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, Steve, uh, looking at things. It appears that there are smaller penalties now and not as many of them. Drivers far more often you know, admitting guilt, accepting the 25-point penalties, which makes you know, your job easier because they you know, they know they can say, right, that's what's going to happen because I've done this. Do you think that there's been a change in the last two years with that change in the way in these policies? Previously, there were some unrealistically low points penalties that were imposed. Um, we've now got to the stage where the um, rule of thumb is that a careless driving incident, which would ordinarily attract a PLP in a race, but which isn't obvious in the race, now would attract a penalty of 50 points because that's about what you lose if you do a PLP in most races. But um, if um, there's an early admission of guilt by the uh, uh, alleged offending driver, the penalty is halved to 25 points. They've got the advantage of knowing what the outcome is, they've got the advantage of knowing what the penalty is, and uh, they've got some certainty of the outcome without needing to rely on our discretion. Of course, our discretion is exercised in fairly narrow um, areas and in a narrow ambit, but um, the degree of cooperation from the drivers is there because I think that we've got some clearly understandable rules so a driver knows whether they have or haven't breached the, uh, the guidelines and the requirements. And as well, there's a, to a degree, a more tolerant attitude so that some things that in the past we were 
required to impose penalty on are now not regarded as breaches and the bar for um, uh, inappropriate conduct is a little bit higher than it has been in previous years. Hmm. So all of those things lead, we think, to better racing, consistent penalties and uh, an appreciation of drivers who themselves accept that they've done something wrong when they breach the rules. Mm. Now, quite regularly we see and uh, a driver or a team member having a, a, a fine imposed on them and we hear, I think uh, on the weekend there was uh, Car 12 had a $1,000 fine with 500 suspended. A lot of people ask me, where does that money go, Stephen? Oh, the, the th- well, can I tell you first of all that... As personally, I'm opposed to fines for sporting offences. It seems to me that if you commit a sporting breach, that is, a breach within a race, we don't impose a fine because some people can afford to pay fines, other people can less afford to pay. A fine really seems to be a licence to commit a breach, whereas we impose points penalties, grid penalties or other penalties. But when fines are imposed, they don't go into general revenue, they're not kept by CAMs, they don't buy us better stewards' accommodation or good stewards' with dinners and bottles of red wine, they, um, the money goes into a trust fund. It's held initially by CAMS, but that money is passed to V8 Supercars and it's held in a trust fund by V8 Supercars and the requirements of that trust are such that can only be used for the development of the sport and that's in further education, improving the image of V8 supercars within the public arena, buying scrutineering and other equipment that's needed to assist um, officials carry out their jobs. So it doesn't go into general revenue, it doesn't go uh, 40% to the teams and uh, a few percent to Tony Cochran or anybody else, it goes specifically for the development of the sport and it's held in trust. Mm. Steve, do you you believe that, you know, as of now, round after round five or event six or whatever it is, this year, say, compared to four years ago, same time, there are far less penalties, there are far less times where you need to see drivers and team managers because the overall standard of both the professional behaviour of drivers on track and teams in pit lane is far better. Yes, I agree, Tony. The, um, what we had is in 2009, we sat down as a group, Thomas, um, the investigating officer of V8 Supercars, um, the race director, the stewards, and we developed a very good set of guidelines for um, the code of driving conduct. Previously, we had nebulous rules like B-pillar rules and this, that and the other, and there was no apparent certainty about the way in which they were applied. Thomas is brilliant as a driving standards observer in assisting us. The guidelines are very good, and in fact they are so good that my experience with Formula One has been that um, when I've circulated the guidelines we work to, they've been picked up by people from overseas and said, hey, they're so good, we'll use them ourselves. Uh, And in fact, it's even caused a change in the mindset of the Formula One stewards with things like blocking moves in Formula One. So um, we've developed the um, application of the rules in a way that has been clear and understandable for the drivers. It's a reasonable standard, so it's not too high and it's not too low, and uh, it's resulted in consistent racing and drivers who understand what the rules are as um, um, they're required to um, overtake under braking in different corners or push someone out of a corner on the acceleration and things of that nature. Mm. You reminded me, in fact, Steve, of a, a moment that I rather enjoyed when we were 
I was doing a track walk in Hamilton, as you were with the race director and the other stewards. And you just come back from Malaysia where you sat in on the Hamilton inquiry. That was, is that the only time you've actually followed up Albert Park with going to another, um, uh, the ra- following race meeting to continue an inquiry? Yes, that was unusual because um, it was a direct question from me as a steward at um, the uh, Australian Grand Prix at Albert Park where um, uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, actually told lies to the stewards. At a later stage, it became apparent that it was a lie because of other interviews that he'd given, and I got a call on the uh, Wednesday um, after the Albert Park meeting saying, we've got you on the plane at 3 o'clock to uh, come to Malaysia. Can you get there, please? And uh, yeah, scramble. <laughs> it was a scramble, but I did get there. <laughs> and um, out of that, um, Lewis uh, was excluded from the Australian Grand Prix. Yano truly was elevated to his correct third place, and um, not only did the penalty we imposed in Malaysia enforce that you can't fib to the stewards, the World Motorsports Council uh, reinforced that with a suspended penalty on, uh, on McLaren, which required that they not do anything of that nature for three years. Mm. Or you, of course, um, follow another Tasmanian in that role with the uh, Grand Prix at, at uh, Albert Park, and that Garth Wixon was your predecessor. Well, Garth was my predecessor as the um, chief steward for V8 Supercars as well. Yes, um, I know. Garth, I... Garth conned me into this job and then uh, <laughs> said, oh, how would you like to do this for about five years? And I think that was about nine years ago. So uh, we're still going. <laughs> Guys, we need to take a break, but we'll speak a bit more about stewards and a lot more about the V8 Supercars series right after this. Controversy Corner is next when we return with more on the V8 Insiders. Find out more about your favourite supercar teams and drivers when we go inside further on the V8 Insiders. You've taken the V8 to the races. you watch the action on TV. Now read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing, V8 Supercars. Showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers, V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 Supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 Supercar coverage. Out now. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. You're listening to V8 Insiders. Welcome back to the V8 Insiders. Joining us, the permanent chief steward of the V8 Supercars, Stephen Chopping, and also the, uh, well, the head of Race Facts, and that is Tony Whitlock. And uh, guys, it, it's been fascinating listening to the stories there. Um, one thing that happened to me this week when I was uh, uh, talking to some colleagues who also like V8 Supercars, but don't don't uh, have the ability to get right inside it as uh, as we in the media do and certainly as you do Stephen in the uh, stewards room and the question was asked of me how come David Reynolds who was of course uh, unfortunately hindered by that fuel leaking issue and out of the uh, fuel hose on Saturday's race number was it 10 uh, or 11, I can't remember which number it was. Yeah. Um, how come he didn't cop a penalty? Because in the past, fuel leaking from a car during a pit stop has seen some, people say draconian, but uh, has seen some very heavy penalties enforced. That was because there was no fault on the part of the team. The, um, the, dry bra- the refuelling rig was plugged into the car and uh, the dead man's handle was open to pressurise the system for fuel to flow into the car. At that stage, the hose split 
and sprayed. It, the dead man's handle immediately um, was closed, and so the fuel flow stopped. The flow was limited. The um, advice that we got from the uh, technical people was that that failure was sudden, unexpected, and wasn't a, apparent prior to um, the, the race or prior to the refuelling. So there was no fault on the part of the team. It was an unexpected failure. It was in, in really a pure accident. And because there was no fault on the part of the team either in the inspection of its equipment, the maintenance of the equipment or the operation of the equipment, um, it was something that was beyond their control. Good old French phrase of force majeure came in there and therefore there was no breach of the specific requirements. Other cases are ones where there's been a breach of the um, required safety standards or operation requirements, and that's been a breach by the team, and that's attracted the penalty. Mm. Uh, actually, Steve, were you uh, Chief Steward when Murphy had his five-minute penalty at Bathurst? No, that was a no. year before, but people keep on telling me about that, and uh, I, Mr Murphy I had a good actually... old dummy spit and a um, sit in a portaloo for five minutes while he fumed, yeah. but... Um, I, I, I found tell out from, from the guy who was in fact the uh, car controller on it, there was not one mistake. Uh, and I, I was Garth Wigston who would have been in the chair then and I actually told Garth Hales that it wasn't one mistake there were in fact four mistakes made you know the car um, was dropped uh, when it shouldn't have been off the uh, off the height off the jacks and the Murphy drove off when he shouldn't have he wasn't supposed to he made four mistakes and so Garth Wigston said oh you mean there should have been four five minute penalties <laughs> Well, I think that Mr Murphy would still be on the rev limiter if um, if he'd got more than one five-minute penalty because um, he still hasn't um, come very far down the anger range from um, 2003 when that happened. Mm. It's, it's an interesting position to be in. And how, how colourful is it when the driver, yourselves are there, and Thomas starts talking to them about something that has been referred to you on the track? Because Thomas has what can only be described as a colourful way of putting across his point. He's got a certain European directness about his approach and, um, and it works well. Um, it's not aggressive and it's not rude because that's what Thomas is. And um, uh, we don't have the liberty of being able to be as brutally frank and um, explicit in some of our terminology and the people we deal with because we really should maintain a, 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 a higher level of decorum. But um, things quite frequently descend to um, fairly graphic descriptions of what people's views are of either our thinking or what Thomas's thinking is. Mm. Of course, uh, the... The big incident that uh, didn't attract a penalty on the weekend was, of course, late in the Saturday race where Will Davison gets off the circuit, comes barrelling up the inside of the hairpin corner and uh, unfortunately for Jamie Winkup, he was the car turning into the corner at the time. Obviously, uh, a lot of people, and probably if you support one make or the other make, you've got an opinion on that, the stewards made a decision or Thomas made a decision racing incident yes um, what was examined there was the catalyst of the whole thing and that was contact between um, uh, car 1 wink up and uh, car 47 sorry car 5 Davison and um, Slade car 47 for the back in the field that was a very minor mistake and was very much uh, the sort of incident that occurs in the course of racing on a fast section of the circuit 
um, involving what room was available, whether it was a safely overtaken manoeuvre. Once that had occurred and Will Davison went off the track, had Will continued on and um, not hit anyone, no penalty would have been imposed on him. The consequences of um, him hitting um, Jamie Winkup were quite severe, but that was not that was still in the one incident and it wasn't something where it was any deliberate approach on the, or lack of care after he'd run off the track on, the, on Will Davison's part and therefore that was an unfortunate consequence of a minor error. The minor error was an acceptable one within the terms of, um, of racing and as a consequence there was no breach of the rules by um, Will Davison. Mm, it's... Even though, from the point of view of car one, um, it eliminated that car from the race. Mm. Yeah, it is amazing how you just have to so dispassionately look at every situation that's presented to you. And I guess uh, your formal training is uh, a great assistance to you there. Um, I, I'd like to think so. Um, and it helps in an analytical approach and also a, um, a, an even application of the rules, irrespective of whether um, the rules are applied to a blue car or a red car or any other coloured car. Mm. Tony, there has been a, a few other stories coming up this week uh, in V8 Supercars, and we should touch on one. Eastern Creek being rebadged as Sydney Motorsport Park. Isn't, I find that so sad. Not necessarily seeing the name of Eastern Creek in the western suburbs, um, but to give such a banal name, a name that means so little it won't be remembered by Sydney Motorsport Park. Okay, they're trying to brand themselves as the centre of motorsport in Sydney, but it's, a, it's just a forgettable name. Mm. I, so guess... I think the opportunity has been wasted because there are some huge historic names in Australian motorsport. Absolutely. And people that have done a great deal on the world scene to establish yeah. it the um, credibility of Australian motorsport and... I mean, um, Jack, Jack was born in the city and started his racing there. Why the hell wasn't called Bratton Park? Hmm. I agree I, with yeah. Tony that um, I think we've had a wasted opportunity and we've got, um, we've got a pedestrian name for what could have been um, something of significance and um, contribute, recognised a contribution to the history of motorsport. Hmm. Yeah. SMP yeah. is going to be the acronym. Hey, is it going to be like... Indy at the Gold Coast, it's always going to be Indy. Is it always going to be the creek? Well, in fact, I hadn't, until I stood up and just said Bradham Park, I'd never actually thought that they should do that. But that's exactly what they should do and should call the bloody place. Because supposedly he was involved in the design of the original track. But the man has put Australian motor racing on the map, and for Christ's sake, that's what it should be called. Mm. Bradham Park. Well, I hadn't spoken to Tony about it, but um, that was what I had in mind as uh, as a thing. You know, Jack um, started his competition career not very far from there. Yeah, yeah. And he went so far, he's the only man to, or the first man to win a world championship race in a car of his own name. And uh, he was a manufacturer, a competitor. He wasn't always Cam's best friend because he thought that Cam should have allowed him to run Red X on the side of his car in the 1950s. So he wasn't always a friend of Cam's. But Jack has done just so much, Sir Jack, I'm sorry, has just done so much that um, yeah. I think we owe him a huge debt. Mm. Yeah, it, yeah. It's going to be interesting, the V8's returning to... And I don't know what to call it, the creek, I guess. And, um, well, let's go with Brabham, Brabham Park. 
And, uh, of course, then it becomes BP, and that's always a difficult acronym to use. But um, are they going to use the long track, Tony? I, I haven't heard at all what they'll use. I mean, when they, uh, in 96, they used the uh, short track, the very short track and lights and had a, a dusk meeting. It wasn't very good, but it was important because um, Lounsey won it and he, in fact, matched HRT's eight-year history when he won <laughs> the second race in the round. Um, but I think that they should use as long a track as they can. I don't know. I haven't actually seen the venue. I'll go and have a look at it. The muscle car mask, no. Uh, before then, I'll go and have a look. But uh, I think as long as a long a track as they can, because these cars deserve that, not being all squashed up together on a small track. Mm. Of course, uh, Stephen, I, I don't know if you can uh, add any more light to that. I don't want to steal anyone's thunder in terms of what announcements might be made, but I've got in my mind that at the driver's briefing on Friday at Phillip Island, the indication was that the track in its old configuration would be used and have got a memory of um, some reference to the newness of the bitumen, and uh, I suppose out of that it might be that um, the way the uh, V8 supercars are, there might be some... um, potential damage to the surface unless the thing is properly settled and cured for some time. Mm. Well, it's going to be one we'll watch with interest. What will also be interesting is will they try to christen it with a big race or will they go sprint races? Uh, There's so many things up in the air with that August date, Tony, that uh, we, we are a little bit fascinated about what they could come up with as a model to drive people to the track because uh, and that's why I was thinking well maybe they just were desperate to get a park in the name because every other racetrack in Sydney that's had park in its name has been successful <laughs> they also don't exist anymore <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do know that um, it's um, a two-day race meeting rather than three days, mm. so it'll cram practice, qualifying and whatever races there are into the Saturday and the Sunday without um, requiring attendance on the Friday. The, um, they're really going to have to get wired up, though, the promoter of the event, in that um, Muscle Car Masters, which is a fantastically successful format and event, the following weekend after the V8s have been there, so they're going to have to put something special on in order to drag people there two weekends in a row because I'm sure that everyone who goes to Muscle Car Masters will not drop that from their calendar if we go to the V8s. Mm, yeah, that's right. It, it's become a Father's Day tradition for a lot of families now to go out and enjoy that weekend. Guys, we do have to wrap it up here. The white flag lap is up next on the V8 Insiders. But a great pleasure to have Stephen Chopping on the show and uh, we wish you all the very best as you head up to Hidden Valley. And, uh, well, Hidden Valley is another track that can be a bit hit or miss with how many visits you have to your office over the weekend. The big advantage of this sport is you never know what's going to come next, Craig. <laughs> also to Tony Whitlock, thanks very much for your time. Oh, pleasure, Craig. Steve, good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Good night. White Flag yeah. Lap is up next here on the V8 Insiders. You've taken the V8 to the races. you watch the action on TV. Now read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing, V8 Supercars. Showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers, V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 Supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 Supercar coverage. Out now. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. You're listening to V8 Insiders. On this week's White Flag Lab, we caught up with Tony Dalberto and had an interesting chat. I hope you enjoy part one. 
since the last time we spoke, there's been quite a few changes in your team, the look of your team, and I guess we had spoken about the pressures of running your team mm-hmm. and having to find sponsors with the championship rolling on and, yeah. and the, the focus, the mixed focus you have to have. How has that changed since the announcement of High Flex Racing? Oh, look, it's definitely uh, it's a good thing for our team to have a Naomi Wright sponsor uh, and, and one that is really enthusiastic about the future of staying in Viet Supercars. So uh, really wrapped with that. Um, you know, it brings other challenges. You know, obviously, it's quite a job to change over everything to... Um, uh, to I suppose rebrand everything so the last probably month has been out of control um, trying to get things happening um, you know and staying within a budget as well because obviously the, the quicker you want things the more it costs and um, you know we still we still have a little bit of uh, funding to find this year but um, we're looking a little bit better and uh, definitely for next couple of years things are going to fingers crossed be a lot more um, you know the team's going to be a lot healthier the branding issue, how long do you think that's still got a roll on until you can say you've completely rebadged and, and redone all the promotional and all yeah. the all the nooks and crannies? Yeah, look, I think probably uh, Philip Island, hopefully we'll, we'll have things finished. We almost got everything done this weekend, but um, yeah, not to be, unfortunately. A couple of things didn't, didn't work out the way we wanted to. But um, like I said, it's just a big job and uh, because we can't just go and... F- get a heap of people in to do it um it takes a lot of effort from all the boys and myself included so um i must admit uh there's been a lot of 430 starts trying to get things done and you know and trying to focus on your racing as well um you know it's difficult of course once this hurdle gets over there's always another hurdle yeah how do you now manage this next period between now and car of the future implementation Car of the future is, uh, you know, we still haven't made a decision on where, you know, where we're going to purchase a car from or who we're going to be lined up with. Um, obviously, we've got a very good relationship with FPR at the moment, and certainly not saying that we're not going to be there. Just um, we're just looking at other options at the moment. So, but we need to make a decision real quick um, because, you know, if we need someone to build us a car, it's not a five-minute exercise. So, um, but that that's going to be a big challenge in itself. Obviously, it's very expensive and. Um, We'd like to try and put someone in our development series car, in my car, in the development mm-hmm. series next year to try and uh, get some more use out of that car as well because, you know, it's only our second season with this car and although it's done a few miles, um, you know, with Jason, um, Stephen Richards driving it, um, you know, it's still a pretty young car. The technical alliance between yourself and FPR, moving forward, do you think you need to move towards a Rod Nash, Paul Morris type yeah. arrangement where you're you're integrated inside that team or do you still think you can manage your own shop and all those oh, look, other... I think, I think um, running our own show, the workshop isn't really a drama. I, I, what I see is a big advantage is if we could pit with them, mm-hmm. pit alongside them uh, and work with them a little bit a little bit closer. You know, we do have a close relationship where we, we get um, to see you know, a lot of the information and have a chat to them and all that. It's probably one of the better um, yeah, customer relationships down pit lane. Um, and we tried to pit with them this year, but unfortunately we had a bit of a shock a year and uh, it would have meant that FPR would have had to come down the pit lane too far. And, uh, you know, I respect that decision that they, they didn't want to do that. Um, so it's sort of up to us a little bit to try and put a bit better year together. So, 
you know, we can pit together um, because, you know, I, I think it just makes pit stops a lot easier. You know, the moment we're sharing with Lucas Dumbrell and he's run a Commodore, run a Falcon, and, um, you know, the boys, besides at the race meeting, we don't see each other, there's not a lot of communication. So, um, whereas with FPR, you know, you could use half their guys and um, just work a lot better. I guess that's one thing we see with Rod Nash's team. Half his guys are pitting his car, half of Stone Brothers yeah. are pitting, and obviously you've got that same problem there. Yeah, we do have that, that same problem. But, you know, like the thing with, with uh, Rod Nash and Dave Reynolds, like they're, they're pitted right beside the other FPR cars. So if Frosty finds something on the track, it's just walk around the corner and say, oh, we've found this. Mm-hmm. Whereas for us, it's very... Um, um, you know, behind the eight ball a little bit, it's more reactionary rather than uh, you know finding out straight away. You might find out at the end of the day, and it's like, well, fuck, it's too late. You know, because we all know how tight it is up and down pit lane, and if you could find out that information, and vice versa, we, you know, we're we're obviously um, you know having the runs on the board like Frosty or Will, but um, we still can offer things to that team. Um, we're not off the pace or anything like that. Um, so there's, there's things that they could pick up on also. It was a big move for you to swap from Holden to Ford and your family relationship particularly yeah. had been a long-established one. Yeah. Have you been happy with the transition and the way it's worked out? There's been challenges, uh, you know, even within the family. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we own three Holden dealerships and uh, we've been holding through and through all our lives. My dad's business is uh, very uh, uh, works very closely with HSV and has done for the last 20 years, so um, it does put tension in, uh, you know, in those areas. But, you know, we had to almost look at the race team as a bit of a different business, and um, it wasn't so much going to Ford. It was just about trying to get a closer relationship with a big team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I like, without going and bagging people, but we weren't getting the service that we wanted from Walkinshaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's probably... We're probably not the only ones that think that. You know, uh, Walkinshaw used to be a real, you know, very customer-orientated and had a lot of customers, and now they're running three cars. So I don't know. Well, management has changed there as well. So it could be a different thing. It could be a totally different environment there now. Um, but at the time when, you know, people were in that role, we didn't feel as though we were going to get the support we needed to, you know, push us up the grid. You know, we need that help. We need that support because you know, it's fractions of a second that we need. And, um, you know, we're running quite an old car and I, I, I just don't believe we were getting the right set-up advice. So with FPR, we certainly do get the right advice and uh, it's up to myself and my engineer, Adam, on the race weekends to try and tune it up for me, you know. Um, we can have a good base and find out what they tried and, and all that, but obviously every driver's a little bit different. And uh, I think this style of car, you know, uh, I like a lot more as well. It's very soft. Um, so it's, it's a, just a different philosophy, which I think suits me a bit more. We'll have part two on next week's show here on the V8 Insiders. But for now, as the checker flag waves over another edition of the V8 Insiders, I'd like to thank Stephen Chobbing, Tony Whitlock and Tony Dalberto. Keep smiling and bye for now. Join us next week for more V8 Insiders, only on v8x.com.au.